in via. We're all on a journey of progressive revelation. No one here has it sorted. In fact, most of us have got like the first sentence of the first book of the first page of the huge heavenly library, which is understanding about who Jesus is, right? And so this woman is going to speak seven times, and she's going to be going on a discipleship journey uh, to understand more and more who he is. Ephraim the Syrian, who was a fourth century uh, guy who lived on top of a pillar in the middle of a desert for Jesus. In those days, they thought that was radical. As, anyway, he said this. At the beginning of the conversation, Jesus did not make himself known to her. But first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet, and she adored the Christ, which I just think is lovely. So she's asked this question, and Jesus answered her, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So they're sitting by a well, and he says, give me a drink of your water. And, she, and then he says, actually, if you knew who I really was, you'd be asking me for a drink. And I wouldn't be giving you water from a manky, dirty little well. I'd be giving you living water. So you would have asked me. You, you could have asked me. You should have asked me. And the woman said to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So she's trying to understand what he's saying. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, no, 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 no. You're not understanding me. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so she's talking about physical things, like the well's deep, you need a bucket. He's talking about spiritual things. And he's saying, no, you need living water. You need the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about something really different. And, and sometimes in our Christian journey... We find ourselves talking about spirit, uh, physical things, material things, when actually Jesus wants us to be talking about spiritual things. Sometimes we talk about material things too much, and we talk about spiritual things too little. And I think we should be talking more about things of the Spirit in these days. A, a sense that it's a time when the things of the Spirit, the unseen things that are still real, are, are, need to be more in our conversations, more in our prayers, more in our awareness than they have been recently. If you're over 35, the world that you live in is mostly material things, and most of your peers would never be talking about spirituality. 
It's just stuff that you can see and touch. Some of our younger guys, they live in a slightly more spiritual world, spiritualized world. Some of our friends who've come from other nations, uh, it's a bit more normal to talk about things like angels and demons. But I just sense that in this next period, the things of the spirit need to be more of a conversation for us. I can't put my finger on it more than that. During Lent, you know, we did 40 days. We tried to do 40 days of prayer and fasting in Lent and daily devotionals. What we realized is we counted wrong and we said happy Easter a week early. I, you know, apparently you're not supposed to count the Sundays. So we learned that. We were trying to be Anglican, you know. But, you know, a, a lot of us in different ways spent time fasting and praying during that time. And um, I realized in the fasting that I did, I realized why I don't fast too often. I'm just being really honest. Um, apart from the fact I like food. Um, but it's actually whenever I fast and pray, I see angels and demons, like a lot, all the time. And I find it overwhelming. Uh, I find it a bit too intense. And that's one of the reasons why I back off rather than pushing in at times. And there are others here that you're like that. That's part of how your gift works. That's part of what you see. You guys, Francis and you, can you just stand up, please? I just see in both of you, that's fine, you don't need to stand. I just see in both of you, I, I see this gift of discernment. I see your prophetic insight. And I just want to call it out. We, we need your gift, okay? We need what you're seeing, what you're saying. Um, we we want to, you know, the church needs eyes. I feel you guys are part of that, okay? So God bless you. Um, and there are others here, okay? And, uh, yeah, I don't want to labor it, but I just feel we need to be talking more about spiritual things and less about material things. Does that make sense? Um, and also, just to say... When I, I, I became a believer when I was 17, um, no one talked to me about the Holy Spirit for the first two years. I was just in a church that didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit. And when I was 19, I was at a camp very much like this, in a tent very much like this. And the person that was doing a talk did a talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I just went, that's for me. Like, I see it in other people. I've kind of had this thing in my mind that maybe I'm not praying hard enough or not, not devoted enough, or, and God will do it in his time. But in that moment, I was like, no. Actually, if God wants to give me this living water so that I'll never be thirsty again, as Jesus is saying here, I want that. And at the end, when they prayed for people, I didn't get out of my seat because <laughs> I was embarrassed. And then everyone else had kind of left, and the guy was just an old guy, just packing up his notes. He looked tired. And, and then I came up to him, and I said, I didn't come up earlier, but can you pray for me now? And I could tell he was probably thinking, we did the praying earlier, mate. <laughs> but he was very gracious. And he put his hands on my shoulders and just said, receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, I started crying, which doesn't happen to me hardly ever. But I felt... It's like I knew God loved me, but it moved from just knowing it into like feeling it deep inside. And there's a verse that says the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he gave us. And that's what I felt. 
And then that day, I started speaking in tongues. It was quite hard work. It took me a whole afternoon. I'd like, I'd, I went and sat in the forest and spoke a bit in tongues and then thought, no, I'm just making it up. I sound like an idiot. And I'd stop and go play football. And then I went back and I was like, no, no, I really want this. And then I spoke a little bit more. And then there's this like battle going on in my head. But by the evening meeting, uh, I was speaking in tongues. And I was like, that gift, I'll be really honest, that gift has changed my life. That's a massive gift for me, speaking in tongues. I speak in tongues for hours. And it does big things in my life, okay? But, but also that... Uh, I, I prophesied for the first time. So that evening, we were praying for people. I prayed for the person next to me. I saw a picture, shared it, really blessed them. And so baptized in the Spirit, spoke in tongues, and prophesied. And I want that for you. And if you're here saying, that sounds amazing, it's for other people, it's never been for me, I want that for you, okay? And we, so we need to talk about spiritual things. We need to pray about spiritual things. That's what Jesus is going for here. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. She's like, she's feeling it now, yeah? Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You said I'd, I could have a living water inside me so I'll never be thirsty again. Give me this water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and then come. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband because you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, we just need to take a moment on this because if you read a lot of the commentaries, uh, you know, generally written by white men in strong places, they generally look down on her and think that she's some kind of like over-sexually active woman, and they despise her, and they think that she's had all these serial marriages. And that is a total misreading of who this woman is and of this story, okay? Um, and there's, there's a couple of ways we can go at this, but it's important, because why are we judging her? Uh, if Jesus was talking about her actual marriage story, if we just consider that for a moment, um, in that culture, much older men married much younger women. It's always an arranged marriage by the families. It's never a love match. Um, the mortality rate was very high. So that's why there are so many widows, because often there'd be a marriage between an older man and a younger woman, and then the man would die. So you've got a lot of widows in society. And then there's often then a remarrying by another man within the family to take responsibility. And so if she's been widowed a bunch of times, that's not her fault. Equally, if she's been divorced a bunch of times, that's not her fault, because in that culture, women didn't have the prerogative to a divorce. Divorce was only at the male prerogative. So if she's been abandoned by men, that's on them, not on her. So either way, the situation that she's in in her story is not her fault. And if she's with a man now who's not her husband, that's also not her fault. Because why isn't he taking responsibility and marrying her, which is at his prerogative. So culturally, she's a pawn. She's a plaything. She's been used and abused or bereaved lots of times. But either way, it's not her fault. Does that make sense? It's important, okay? But even more compelling to me is the fact that I don't think Jesus is actually talking about this woman's sexual history at all. I think that he's talking about the story of Samaria. I think he's still addressing her question about inequality and ethnicity. 
I think he's still responding to her pain question. So, you see, the woman isn't named. And often in the Bible, when characters aren't named, it's because they're being used as a, a symbolic representative of their community. She's called the Samaritan woman lots of times here, which shows that her ethnicity is an important part of this story. It keeps drawing it out. And the history is important. Jesus isn't talking to her as a, just a decontextualized individual, but as someone who's part of a community, who's part of a story, and who's part of a history. And the history of Samaria was horrific. So the Assyrians had come, the Assyrian Empire had come, 700 years before this, and had taken people off as slaves and had repopulated the area with other people from other places. It's like what Stalin did, just move communities around as you want to try and kind of control them. In fact, it's what the British did in Northern Ireland, where my dad's ancestors come from, when they just, in the 1600s, just moved a whole load of Protestants into Northern Ireland as a buffer against the Catholics, just moving people around, right? That's exactly what happened in the Samaritan story. And, um, and this is just, don't zone out, okay? It's not just a bit of history. It's important to understand the story and to understand what Jesus is saying here. And so there's this resettlement of people, and then there's this intermarriage. So you end up with this people who are a really sort of intermarried community with lots of different backgrounds. And they're still trying to worship the same God as the Jews were worshipping, but it's got complicated over the years. And they don't want to go to Jerusalem because that's the capital of, like, the enemy. So they, they, they make their own temple, and they've got their own center here. Now, they've been colonized since then five times and now the Romans are oppressing them as the colonizer and so a lot of commentators that are reading this would say we wonder if you've had five husbands and the one that you're with now is not your husband is actually a story of the the, the history of colonization of Samaria does that make sense you've had these these other powers that have come in, and now you've got the Romans. And Jesus is responding to her question, but he's doing it indirectly and through metaphor so as not to shame her. But he's talking about her pain and her, her nation and her story and her history. Now, it is super important in our post-colonial world to be aware of history and the pain that arises from history particularly in a multicultural town like Reading and particularly in a multicultural church like ours. The conversations over the last few years about Britain's history in the transatlantic slave trade that were given a megaphone in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, these conversations have to be had. And we've been having them in a wonderful way in our church, but we need to keep having these conversations. If you're British, it's important that you're aware of some of these things. And a lot of our world today is post-colonial. The 20th century was a really brutal century, and now we're in the shadow of that, and we're in the 21st century, and we're inheriting a lot of the pain from the last century, and we need to be having these conversations. And I think Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman is showing us how to have these kind of conversations in a sensitive, loving gospel-centered way, but Jesus is listening and he's responding. 
and he's taking her history and her community seriously. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, I think she perceives he's a prophet because he's talking about issues of injustice. I don't think it's because of supernatural knowledge. I think it's because of his response to justice. And I think sometimes we misread the idea of prophetic as being about supernatural knowledge. And I think more in the Bible, the prophets are people that are speaking out about issues of justice. And so again, I think we need to be thinking more about if we're a prophetic community. Yeah, that means life in the spirit and supernatural knowledge and things that we couldn't know. But it also means a passion for the poor, a passion for the marginalized, a passion about justice. I, I think that's what it means to be a prophetic community. And over the next term, we're going to be taking time reading Jeremiah together, who is a prophet who really embodies that. He's, a, he's passionate. He cares about these things. And so verse 20. Now she's going to say, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So they're saying, we've got our mountain, you've got your mountain. Which one is right and which one is wrong? Okay? Are we right and you're wrong, or are you right and we're wrong? And Jesus says to her, and this is wonderful, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation came from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So you've got this, you've got this loggerheads, this binary. Are we right or are you right? Is it our mountain or your mountain? And Jesus says, it's neither. It's neither. But actually, God is doing a new thing when you don't need a mountain to worship. You just need the spirit. And so it's not going to be about a place. It's going to be about the power of God. It's not about a place, it's about a person now, right? And it's so important because so often if we get locked into conversations where we go to head to head in any space in life, it tends to be either you're right or I'm right, yeah? Either Chelsea's massive or West Ham's massive. Well, to be honest, neither, right? <laughs> I said to my boys this morning, like, oh, the place we're going is between Southampton and Bournemouth. And one of the boys in the car went, oh, what, like Chelsea? I was like, oh. <laughs> anyway. So often, people want to pin us into, is it, is it left or is it right? Yeah, kind of culture wars. Are you on this side or are you on that side? Those are the only options. I get that all the time. Are you, are you egalitarian or complementarian? Uh, neither, I read the Bible, Right. You know, are you right wing or left wing? Neither, I read the Bible. And so, so often people want to pin you into a space. And what Jesus does here is he says, it's not that mountain and it's not that mountain. But actually, you're going to worship the Father by the Spirit. And there's a wonderful wisdom that Jesus has to imagine a completely different space, a completely different way of connecting with people, a, diff a completely different way of worshiping God. And um, this was always God's great plan, wasn't it? not to have the whole worship 
of the world centered on Jerusalem, on a place, on a temple like in the Old Covenant. But to have worship centered on a person, the person of Jesus Christ, so all nations can come to him. So we worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And um, it means there's no center to Christianity. It means we don't have to go on pilgrimage anywhere. You don't have to go on pilgrimage to Rome or to Jerusalem or to Reading in California with Bill Johnson. You know, it's, it's not that God's more there than here. We don't, we don't have a center. We don't have a holy place. And it also means that when we are thinking about mission locally within Reading, we're not going, oh, we have to get people into our Sunday meeting. We're not going, our Sunday meeting is more holy than my workplace or than the pub or than my living room. And so we don't have to pull people in because we think that's where they'll meet with God. Actually, we, we take the presence of God wherever we go, into our workspaces, into our neighborhoods, into the places where people are. Does that make sense? And so it's a push, not a pull. And, and that's what Jesus is offering here. He's saying it's not about that mountain or this mountain. It's about life in the Spirit and worshiping the Father in the Spirit. And then the woman said to him, 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And um, one of the things we lose there in the English is he actually says, the one who is speaking to you, I am. I am. Which is one of the names of God in the book of Exodus. And in the Gospel of John, you have seven times Jesus will say an I am statement with something attached to it. So I am the bread of life. I am the living vine. I am the resurrection and the life. Seven times he does that in the Gospel of John, right? But also... Another seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus will just say, I am, as an absolute statement with no. So before Abraham was, I am. And here he says to the woman, I who speak to you, I am. So what he's saying here is he's saying, I am God. I am the I am. I'm the same God who revealed himself in Exodus to Moses. So it's Jesus making this incredible revelation of him. I'm not just a person. I'm not just a carpenter. I'm not just a Jewish man. I'm not just the Christ. I am. And he, he entrusts this revelation, this incredible glimpse of God to this woman. He, he, he respects her enough to entrust a wonderful revelation of who he is to her. And just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And we saw a water jar yesterday in our story. And again here, this woman leaving her water jar, it's like she's leaving her old life her old life that was made up of material things, material thirst, material satisfaction, water. She's leaving that behind. 
because now she's got the living water. She doesn't need the water jar. You don't need that anymore. You've got the living water now. You'll never be thirsty again. So she leaves her old life behind. She goes and tells the people, could this be the Christ? And actually through her witness, the whole village comes to faith. The whole village comes to faith through her. It's wonderful. I was... um talking recently with some Iranian believers, doing a bit of training for some Iranian Christians. And they're all sharing their testimonies. And there's this one woman, small, quiet lady right on the end. I said to her, what about you, sister? What's your story? And she said, oh, yeah, also through me, when I came to faith, my whole family came to faith. She's from the south of Iran in the desert area where there's, like, no Christians. I was like, oh, that's amazing. Like, tell us a bit about it. How many people in your family? She said, oh, about 200 Firstly, I thought, that's a big family, right? Secondly, I thought, that's extraordinary, quiet, quiet little woman. But she was the first person in her whole community. She came to faith, and then through her witness, her whole community came to faith. And that happens here. That's what this woman does. Jesus reaches her so deeply, scratches where she's itching, responds to her really pertinent questions. The thing doesn't brush them off, but gets so deep inside her kind of on behalf of her community, that the gospel that she gets from Jesus resonates to her whole community. It makes sense to them. And she's able to go and tell them about Jesus. So that's the story. And then just briefly, what do we learn and what are the conversations that we could be having from this? Firstly, let's talk about inequality. And I'm aware, even as I was saying that, some of you lean in because you really care about this, and others just back off, and it's like, can we stop talking? And we've had enough of talking about this now, okay? And I'm just saying, the idea of power sensitivity and listening to people's stories, it's not a 21st century thing. Jesus was intentionally doing this. He wasn't ignoring these issues. He did move towards them. He, He basically took his disciples on a really long journey through the Gospels, trying to get them to respond to Samaritans, to get over this prejudice. Because he wanted to create one new man in Christ, and that takes work and conversations and listening. And so I think we're having a great journey on this, but we've got to keep having these conversations, keep talking about inequality. And it's not just the ethnicity thing. In this story, it's also the gender thing. And just to say, and Liz will hate me for saying this, but uh, the other week, Liz preached an absolute blinder in our... Um, in our series on the Apostles' Creed. She preached on, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible message. Afterwards, I was just sitting at the front next to Liz and watching. And a number of people came up to her and gave her their comments, negative and positive on the sermon. And like, that was good. You could have done this better. I couldn't believe it. And they would never do that to me. But I just thought there's something about the fact that she's a woman preaching, people feel a bit more entitled to come and give her their opinion. And it really affected me. And, and I think we've just got to keep working on this, right? We've got to keep working on this. And so let's talk about inequality. Secondly, let's talk about spiritual things. Let's talk more about the spirit. Let's talk less about material things. I'm not saying let's all get all esoteric. I just think there's a balance that needs a bit correcting. This is also real. Life in the spirit is also real. 
Let's talk more about baptism in the Spirit. Let's talk more about discernment. Let's talk more about deliverance. Let's talk more about if people are feeling kind of spiritually oppressed. And some of you are. Some of you have come here this weekend and you're like, I feel unwell, but it's not a physical, it's not emotional, it's not mental, it's spiritual. I feel heavy in my spirit. Let's talk about that so we can pray, right? Number three, let's talk about discipleship. She goes on this journey. She speaks seven times. Every time she's growing a bit more in her understanding of Jesus. And it's a, it's a bit of an argument with Jesus. Actually, it's a dialogue, but it's a feisty dialogue. I feel like my discipleship journey is an argument with Jesus a lot of the time. He's going, do this, and I'm like, really? But seriously, I think that is part of the journey, is, is grown-up conversations with Jesus and with each other. And in that, we keep growing. We keep maturing. We see more about him. You know, at the end of this story, the Samaritan community say, he's the savior of the world. It's this incredible kind of statement about who Jesus is. He's, he's the savior of the world. And you wouldn't have got that just from a Jewish community. They would have gone, he's the savior of the Jews. It took getting outside that for people. It's like, in a, you know, in America, the basketball, they call it the World Series, right? Because they don't play anyone else. It's only Americans. But there's something here about getting outside of that community and, and these people encountering him. And they're able to go, he's truly the savior of the world. And so to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, we need to keep stepping outside of what we're used to, outside of the spaces that we're in. And then we grow in our understanding of who he is. Does that make sense? So let's keep being discipled. Let's keep growing in our knowledge of Jesus. Don't settle. Don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. Ah, I know Jesus. I know when I die I'm going to heaven. Ah, none of you are saying that. But let's keep leaning in to know him more. Fourthly, let's talk about wisdom. And to, so, so often, if you're in a situation, maybe in your family life, maybe in your work life, where you're stuck, and it's like you've got to choose this or that, there's a binary, what wisdom offers us here in Jesus is creating a whole other space, a different space. Well, you don't have to choose between that and that. Let God give you a creative solution, something different. Let, imagine something else, a different kind of space. It's not that mountain or this mountain. It's worshipping by the Spirit. Who would have imagined that? Fifthly, let's talk about local mission, which we're doing, but there's no special holy place. We carry the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the Spirit, wherever we go. Here, this woman encounters the life of God, but not by going to Jerusalem. Jesus has come to her. She didn't go to the temple. The temple came to her and found her. And sixthly, let's talk about Jesus. He's come from heaven to earth to search for his bride. And she's not complete yet, otherwise the wedding would have happened. So he's still searching out his bride from across the nations of the world, from the corners and the, the little slum bits of Reading. He's calling out his bride, right? Let's, let's talk about Jesus and, and see the conversations that he's having with people, the way that he's interacting with people. And let's learn from him. So let's stand. We're going to pray.